0: Ben's gonna be preaching from the story of Jonah tonight, and the passage is Jonah 1, 1 through 16. I'll give you a chance to find that in your Bible or phone or device. I'm reading from the ESV version. Please stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose the fleet of Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hur- hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. We may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and a lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account. This evil has come upon us what is your occupation where do you come from what is your country and of what people are you and he said to them i am a hebrew and i fear the lord the god of heaven who made the sea in the dry land then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him what is it that you have done for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the lord because he had told them then they said to him what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us but the sea grew more and more tempestuous he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of God for the people of God. God.
1: Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here. And uh, the good news is we we officially voted on Stephen Langford to be an elder, and he was approved uh, 63 to 1. We have a new elder. Uh, He will be installed on um, September 11th. uh, Another piece of good news is that I uh, was spared this week from um, what could have been a really bad heart attack. Uh, I had a heart attack, and yet um, my heart function afterwards was completely normal. It does not make any sense. Uh, Monday night at 7, I went to... The ER, because I felt this incredible tightness in my chest, so I drove myself to the ER. Uh, They got me right up to the cath lab in under an hour. It took about two hours to do uh, the surgery. They went through uh, my wrist. There's no cutting at all anymore. They just put a catheter right through the blockage. They blew up the thing into a stent, and uh, the blood just immediately started flowing. Uh, It was incredible. They thought that there would be death to some part of the heart, because two hours with no blood is often a sign of some uh, necrosis in part of the heart, but it didn't happen. It was fully functioning. Uh, it was beating strongly. Uh, they couldn't believe it. The doctors just could not explain what was going on. So praise God. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really uh, something to just live under the mercy of God. Just be very aware uh, all week. And I felt people praying for me. There were so many people praying for me on Monday. And um, yeah, I just felt like Daniel in the lion's den last week where the mouth of the lion was not allowed to close over him. You know, God, I felt like an angel was there just just not letting this heart uh, die in any way. And um, living under the mercy of God is really about the whole story of Jonah. Um, The very function of Israel was to be the presence of God's mercy on earth. And they were supposed to spread the mercy of God. God's secret rescue plan to save uh, planet earth was for Jonah uh, to spread the mercy of God all around the world. Uh, We're looking this fall at the Jesus Storybook Bible, which you may or may not have heard of. It's a children's storybook, um, and it goes through all these different stories in the Bible. We've gone through about half of them this summer. But now we're getting to the New Testament, which starts next week. And the story of Jonah is the last Old Testament story. And it is a pointer to the way that the mercy of God will come incarnate in Jesus Christ, as we'll see in the sermon. Um, But I want to look at the fact that um, although Jonah and Israel were supposed to be this vessel of God's mercy, uh, he was running away from that mercy. And we all do. Uh, We all do all the time. Even though um, that is the calling of the church, is to be uh, God's mercy in Winston-Salem, in the United States, in the the world. And so I want to look at the fact that Jonah was running from that mercy and how we also do that. But then I also want to look at the way that when we run from mercy, mercy runs after us faster than we can run from it. So uh, that's the second part of the story. Be... The story begins with simply the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And it's uh, 650 B.C. And if you know your ancient history, you know that Assyria was the cruelest empire ever to live, um, maybe even to this day. Uh, They used psychological warfare. Um, They impaled anyone uh, who stood against them. They would often flay them. They would amputate them. They would put the parts of their body on sticks. And uh, they were showing how they were proud of this. So not only were they incredibly inhumane and cruel, but they were very proud of it. And when I went to the British Museum in London, there's an entire room, it's not as big as this room, but it's really big, and it has uh, really big walls where it has these, um, these uh, frescoes or murals from the palace of Nineveh that actually show the way the Assyrians treated the Hebrews at the Battle of Lashish, and it, Shows all these things I just described. It's like living proof of the scripture story uh, of the Assyrians and what they did to Israel. And so when God tells Jonah, uh, go to Nineveh and tell your worst enemies that I love them. uh, Jonah says, no, those are bad people doing bad things. They don't deserve it. That's a direct quote from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, no, those are bad people doing bad things. They don't deserve it. And Jonah uh, understandably hates the idea of going to his worst enemies and preaching mercy to them. Preaching repentance to them. So, verse 3 says, he rose and fled to Tarshish. That's Spain. So he's supposed to be going northeast and he goes southwest. He is going directly from where he's supposed to be going. In the story of Bible, he says... Uh, Jonah came to the ticket office of the boat and said, one ticket to not Nineveh, please. And so he goes to Tarshish. And um, one interesting thing about this is uh, if, if you're fleeing from mercy, then you're fleeing from God. You're fleeing from the presence of God. Uh, Jonah 4, chapter 1. At the very end of the story, when he uh, actually does finally unwillingly almost go to Tarshish. I mean, go to Nineveh. He, he's turned around. He goes back to Nineveh. God makes him go back. He spits him out of a, a fish and sends him back to Nineveh. And, um, and then when Jonah preaches to them, they repent. And he, even then he hates it. And he says, this is why I ran away. Did I not say it? I knew you were merciful and compassionate and eager to turn back from destroying people. So even in Jonah 4.1, after all this, he is still... Running from mercy. uh, Because he knew that God was merciful. So he's not only going the wrong way, he's running from really who he is. Because God is the very ground of our being. We are upheld constantly by God. The reason I'm breathing, my heart is pumping, is literally because God is choosing to do that. And so it says in verse 3, and this is a really telling little sentence fragment. It says, Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. Which is by definition, like, impossible. That'd be like saying Jonah was fleeing from the air, or fleeing from the ground. You cannot flee from the presence of the Lord. It says in Psalm 139.7, Where shall I flee from your presence, Lord? Even if I flee to the farthest part of the sea, which is where he was trying to flee, even there you uphold me. So mercy is always upholding us. It is... Keep keeping our lives afloat. I know that this week very well. I wish I could say I will know that next year as well as I know it right now. But the reality is we cannot flee from the presence of the Lord who is mercy. And that's why the, the, the narrative keeps saying that he was going down. He's going down, going down, going down. Because he's trying to flee from God who is really upholding him every second. And if you're trying to flee from what upholds you, you go down and down and down and down into nothingness. He was descending into oblivion. It says in verse 3, he went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going down to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it. So he's just going down into non-existence, so to speak. And in verse 5, he says he went down into the inner part of the ship. So he just keeps going down. And then eventually it says he went to sleep. So he was was fast asleep. The, The phrase almost means like he was practically dead. There's just nothing going on in him because he's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, which you can't actually finally do. And eventually it takes this, this captain who's not a, not a believer in God. He's a, a worshiper of idols. And it takes the captive to bring Jonah, who is an Israelite who knows the living God, it takes this captain to bring him to his senses. It's like he, he just throws a bucket of cold water on Jonah's face and he wakes up. The captain says, what is your occupation? Verse 8, where did you come from? Of what people are you? He's saying, this is really God speaking through the captain. Who are you? Did you forget who you were? Do you know what you're supposed to be doing on this planet? Israelite? And finally Jonah has to say, okay, I admit it, I'm a Hebrew. I am I, one of those people who fears the Lord. I, I am someone who worships the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He finally has woken up to who he is. It reminds me of uh, one of my favorite, my favorite animated movie for sure of all time, The Lion King. And uh, when King Mufasa says to Prince Simba, when he's looking at his reflection in the pool, and, and Simba is running from who he really is, just like Jonah. He's running from being um, this... Royalty, as Israel was, royalty, the royalty of God on earth. And Mufasa says to Simba, You have forgotten who you are and you have forgotten me. You are more than what you have become. And that's what God was saying to Jonah. You've forgotten yourself. You're a Hebrew. You worship the God of the heaven and the sea and the dry land. And if you are angry with your enemy and you're not willing to show mercy, and, and you call yourself a Christian, you have forgotten who you are. Because that's, that's what Christians do. That's who we are. If you're not a believer, you should uh, hold your Christian friends accountable. Say, you're supposed to be a mercy person. And you're still holding your anger at me. We are not allowed to do that. Um, we can feel those things, but we have to work against those things. We can feel the anger, but we have to work against the anger. You know, one question I think about is, um, if you're somebody that does not like Donald Trump at all, um, do you want those documents that were found in Mar-a-Lago to be as bad as possible? Like, do you want the nation's security to be compromised because you hate Donald Trump? Or if you're somebody, you know, who wants to beat the Democrats in the fall, do you want the economy to tank? Like, do you kind of want there to continue to be maybe even like a recession, so that, so that you can beat the Democrats. I mean, we have these desires for harm for other people. And we, we as believers in, in mercy, so often feel like we have the right to hold our anger against someone. And um, a friend of mine who does a, a lot of conflict work, he says church conflict is the worst kind of conflict, because they're the least likely people to give up their anger at one another. And that, that should not be as the church. And when you have a brush with death, uh, like I did Monday, it, it's, it concentrates the mind wonderfully. That's what Samuel Johnson said. It concentrates the mind wonderfully to have a brush with death. And I, I had a friend send me this uh, quote. It was from this book called Tuesdays with Maury, which uh, I did not like that book when it came out. I thought that it was kind of sentimental and silly. I was not a Christian when it came out, but I just remember not liking the book Tuesdays with Maury. It's about a a guy named, um, I can't remember the name, Mitch Album is the name of the guy who who interviews his sociology professor who's dying. And it's really fascinating. It's all about the stuff the sociology professor says because he goes every Tuesday morning to interview his professor. And here's one of the things, this is what my friend sent me. Uh, This is the quote from Maury Schwartz, the professor. He's dying, remember, and so he's telling Mitch all the things you think are so important that you're holding against people, all these grudges and stuff, let them go. You're not, he's like, forgive everybody everything. When you get older, you won't even care about what they did or what happened, who did what. Let it, let it all go now before you regret it at the end. Because there's, there's no grudge we're holding that we're gonna wanna be holding on our deathbed. And I, I, I knew that very well, that there's just, there's no reason to withhold mercy. There's no reason to descend into non-being, to flee from the presence of mercy himself. It's actually impossible. It's absurd. And the reason of ultimately it's impossible is because mercy is running after you. I kept thinking of that song, Running Up That Hill. I don't know why. I just Every time I thought about mercy running after you, I just thought about that song by Kate Bush, uh, "Be Running Up That Hill. I also thought about the song, which is more appropriate, Your Goodness Is Running After Me. Your goodness is running after me. Um, The Jesus story Bible defines God's love as a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. That's a great definition of God's pursuing mercy that will not let us go. And so it says in verse 4 that the Lord, he hurled a great wind upon the sea. Hurled is used four times in this passage. And so God is... Hurling, I think about a cowboy, like hurling a lasso over a a, a bucking bronco or a calf that's trying to get away. God hurls a great wind upon the sea because he's going after Jonah. He is not going to let Jonah get away. He's going to pull him back. Pull him back to who he is. You're, You're an Israelite. You're here on planet Earth to show mercy to the Ninevites. He's pulling him back to who he really is. And so it says there was a mighty tempest on the sea. And if you've ever been in a bad storm, this is a mighty tempest. This is a really, really bad storm. Um, It always creates the need for mercy. Even if you've been at the beach, and it was like a a, a strong wind at night. We're just kind of howling through the house. Um, You you know your need for mercy just kind of shakes you up. You kind of end up shaking. You know, our dog, whenever there's thunder, is just shaking violently. Runs underneath uh, the sink and just shakes violently. And that's, God did that intentionally to bring Jonah To the end of himself. It says in verse 15. They picked up Jonah. And they hurled him into the sea. Back towards. Back towards Joppa. Back towards Nineveh. They hurled him into the sea. He's he's getting hurled around all over this passage. The the storm is hurled. He's hurled into a fish ultimately. And when he's in that fish. It says. It was so dark. Because now as soon as he fell into the water. God sent a fish to eat him. And. You know, you get into the science of this, and um, I don't really want to go there, but they did find someone who had lived in the belly of a fish for a very long time. So it's not impossible. But anyway, I believe it was a real fish. I believe this really happened. It actually says in the Bible that God spoke to the fish. I like that. Because that means God communicates with animals. He also spoke to Balaam's donkey. I like to think he speaks to my dog. I I like to think of God speaking to the animals, and they're doing things. They're having a conversation with God. But anyway, he says to the fish, uh, fish, I got a guy over there for you to swallow. It's, uh, It's a lot. I'm asking a lot of you, but I want you to go and swallow that guy. And then I want you to spin him back towards, make sure it's towards Nineveh. And so the fish swallows him. And when he's in the belly of the fish, it's not a whale. The Jesus storybook Bible says it was so dark that he thought he had died and was in a tomb. Then he realized that his plan to run away from God was a silly plan indeed. And he prayed to God and he asked God to forgive him. So he's, he's mercy is coming to him. And he's starting to be overtaken by that mercy. And then when the, when the fish spits him out on the land, um, and this is like, this is my wife's favorite line it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The word of mercy. This guy is utterly rebellious. It takes a fish to be spitting him on the land. It says the word of the Lord came to him a second time. And if you're angry and you can't give up something, he's going to come again. He's not going to say forget about him. He's going to come again. He's going to keep coming. He's going to keep coming. They could have said the word of the Lord came to Jonah a hundredth time. And he just kept saying, you need to forgive. You need to show them mercy. I know you hate them. I know they've hurt people in your family. But you've got to forgive them. You've got to go to them and you've got to preach to them. You've got to tell them the good news. The word of the Lord came to him a second time. And so he goes to Nineveh. And somewhere in that journey, he kind of forgot about the mercy. Because, like I said, he gets there grumpy. And it's the worst revival sermon ever. This is the sermon. He goes to Nineveh. He stands in the square. And he's like, hear ye, hear ye. And they all turn and look at him. And all he says in Jonah 3, 5 is, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Thank you very much. And he walks away. And then when everybody hears that, they all repent. You know, I I have preached for years and would love to see revival occur. It's never happened. And Jonah preaches the worst sermon ever, and the entire city, hundreds of thousands of people, repent. And they all put on dust cloth. It says in verse 6, all the people believed in God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, from the least of them to the greatest. All of Nineveh immediately repents when they hear about the judgment of God. God is giving them a chance to relent. In other words, you will not be destroyed if you repent in 40 days. And they do repent immediately. And when this happens, what do you think Jonah's reaction is going to be to these people repenting? I mean, you would think by this time he would say, fantastic. My preaching worked, and these people have repented and they're worshiping the same God as me. And they're not going to be cruel anymore. And they're not going to flay anyone anymore. They're not going to amputate anybody anymore. They're not going to cut off any heads anymore. But it says in verse 4, chapter 1, Jonah was exceedingly angry. Is this not what I said you'd do? I knew you were merciful, and I didn't want this to happen. That's why I didn't preach to them. And I preached to them the worst sermon ever, and even then, you forgave them. So he's still running from mercy. But, once again, God has something for him. And a lot of times God does this. It's not going to be necessarily words, it's going to be events. And it's usually painful, like the storm was painful. The fish was painful. This is painful. It says that God sent a scorching heat upon Jonah, and he almost wanted to die. He was so miserable. So imagine the plains of Nineveh, 120 degrees outside, and then this wind blows up, and these, these hot winds out in the desert are apparently just horrible. They, the, the pain is enormous when these winds come. And so he's miserable. And then God makes a plant grow over him quickly. So now he's under the shade of the plant. He's relieved. He's enjoying the plant. He's enjoying the mercy of God. And then guess what God does? He kills the vine, he kills the plant. And Jonah's angry again. And this is how the book ends. This is how the book of Jonah ends. Jonah has been relieved once again of this pain. God has shown him mercy. And then God says to him, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. And should I not pity Nineveh, this great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and then also many cattle. I love the last part about the cattle. Um, You know, it's like the fish, he talked to the fish and he loves the cattle. 120,000 people and then all this cattle he could have mentioned the chickens. He could have mentioned the pigs. He could have mentioned the horses. But God's love for Nineveh is an all-encompassing love, a, a mercy for all of these creatures, including the humans. And so that's the last line of the book. And it, let, it leads you to ask the question, is Jonah going to repent again? Is he going to understand the mercy of God finally? And so it leaves you, reader, dear reader, uh, in that position, asking yourself, Am I going to show mercy? Am I going to celebrate the fact that God has saved these cattle and these people? There's um, a great movie that is, I think, three years old. So I think it's, it's, run, it's the, pa- the time it passed um, where I cannot give away the, the, the ending of that movie. So we've reached our statute of limitations. I am going to give away the end of the movie. So if you want to see the movie, then you shouldn't listen to this illustration. It's a, it's a very small indie movie called Minari. So I don't think many of you were waiting to rush out to the theaters and watch this movie. But it's a great movie. Minari is M-I-N-A-R-I if you want to watch it. And I think by describing this, you're not going to go, oh, I'll never watch that movie. Because it's not really about the, the plot. It's about, it's about the feelings you get when you watch the movie. So Minari is the name of the movie. It is a true story. And the guy who experienced the story is the one who wrote the movie and directed it. And it's about a Korean family that moves uh, to make their fortune in the 70s in Arkansas. It's very hard to be a Korean family living in rural Arkansas in the 70s. And the husband's name is Jacob and he is obsessed with the American dream of growing his crops and making money and having a farm. So he buys this plot of land and that's where he's going to make his farm. And the wife, Monica, is horrified when she finally pulls up to the farm and realizes there's almost nothing here but a trailer. And she is really concerned, almost obsessed with her son's health, with little David. And she thinks Jacob doesn't care about David. And Jacob thinks she doesn't care about my farm at all. And their fights grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And she's giving up on his dream about the farm. And she thinks he's just wasting his life and all this money. And she's thinking he doesn't care at all about David. And the movie comes to a climax when they go to Oklahoma City. So they go to Oklahoma City for two reasons, he's there to buy, he's there to find a seller for his crops, which have finally grown. He finally has grown some crops, and he's there to find someone to buy his crops. She doesn't even really realize he's doing that. She is there because they have a big doctor's appointment about David's heart, and his heart's not strong. So she's really worried about her son's heart, and she wants to move back towards Korea to be near family. So they get to Oklahoma City, Jacob drops off Monica and David, at the doctor's. He goes surreptitiously, he finds the buyer. The buyer agrees to buy his stuff. He brings him this carton of his stuff. He is so excited that the guy's gonna buy his crops that he brings his stuff into the waiting room of the doctor's office. And there's Monica, and she's been thinking about this. He, David's back with the doctor getting scans. And Monica says, I've been thinking a lot about it. And uh, we are moving to California. To be near better doctors. I've decided we're doing that. And Jacob says, I just got a buyer for my cross. And he says, I am going to finish what I started here. And you realize they're getting, they're going to get divorced. It's over. Because as soon as she saw him with that box say that, she's like, I don't want anything to do with this marriage. So it's It's done, the doctor comes out right after that and says, his heart has improved enormously, he's gonna be fine, Um, aren't you excited? And they're like, they're just totally silent. And they drive back to the farm in Arkansas, long silent drive home, and and you're as a viewer, you're thinking, we're almost at the end of this movie, what's gonna happen? And they see the barn is on fire. The barn is on fire, and so all of his crops, are being consumed. And they run up to the barn and Monica runs in and starts trying to get his stuff and move it out. Like she's getting all of the crops he's grown. and she, She's moving them out of the barn to save them. And she falls down exhausted, like just, uh, I guess, smoke inhalation. She just collapses to the ground, kind of in the middle of the flames. And Jacob is doing the same thing. He's taking his crops out. And then he, he looks down and realizes that Monica is on the ground. And so he drags her out and just forgets about all the crops. And the barn burns down. All his crops are gone. And the last scene in the movie is is the family lying on the ground. It's an angle from the top. And they're holding hands. And it's like the the mercy of God saved saved their marriage. By this, uh, God hurled a fire at the barn. And sometimes the things that we least want to have happen are the severest mercy of God. And it's not going to be easy when mercy tracks you down. It wasn't easy for Jonah. Uh, It wasn't easy for Monica and Jacob. But the thing is that Jesus bears the weight. He's the one that goes into the barn and drags all of us out and dies in the barn. He bears all of the weight on himself. The last line of the story of the Bible is, many years later, God was going to send another messenger who would spend three days in the belly of a fish in utter darkness. This was God's own son. He would be called the Word because he wasn't just a messenger. He was God's message. Everything God wanted to say to the Remember, we love you, rascals.